The freedom to be fired is a great thing because when you're not worried about, am I going to have a job or not? Because, hey, I think I'm pretty smart, I think I'm employable, and I think I could probably go off and do something, then you can really be true to yourself and be passionate about, hey, this is what I think we should do. Hi guys, this is Malik and welcome to the Future Proof Leader Podcast. For today's episode, I had a great pleasure of sitting down with the president and CEO of Concentrics, Chris Caldwell. He has been a good friend, a fierce competitor, but most importantly, a leader I respect deeply in the global BPO industry. Under his remarkable leadership, the company has grown from just a handful of employees back in 2006 to now over 225,000 employees spread across 40 countries in six continents. The annual revenue for the company is over $5 billion. Chris has won many awards, including the Young Entrepreneur of the Year at the age 20. But beyond his big job and awards he has collected over the years, what I admire the most about Chris is that he's just a nice guy, very humble and down to earth. So I hope you enjoy this conversation where we discuss how he got to where he's now, his journey to the top, and also how he's future-proofing himself and concentrics for the disruptive decade ahead. So I hope you enjoyed the episode. Welcome to the podcast, Chris. Good to have you here. Great. Thank you very much, Paula. Good to be here. You know, I have plenty of questions for you about, obviously, what you're up to now and uh, where you're heading in the future. But I want to start off with uh, taking us all back in time. From what I gather, you had your first entrepreneurial venture when you were just 10 years old, where you were, I guess, buying floppy disks in Canada and then selling it in UK for a huge profit. Can you Take us through that uh, episode of your life. Uh, my, my, my goodness, yeah. But my, my, um, my parents were living in Africa, as, as, as I was, uh, and uh, the Canadian government was uh, very helpful to send me to private school in, uh, in the UK. Uh, and I couldn't necessarily compete with my, my peer set there just from a, from a uh, wealth and, and spending perspective. Um, but I figured out that floppy disks in the UK were uh, five pounds a disk. Uh, and yet I could buy 10 in Canada for $10 Canadian. So uh, I, I used to fill up my suitcase in, in Canada, take them over and sell them to my schoolmates for four pounds a piece uh, and make a very side, uh, you know, sizable uh, and a nice profit that kept me going through the semesters for you know, candy and, and other things that a 10-year-old generally would like to consume at the time. But yeah, that was, that was my first venture into thinking, ah, there's, there's something to this. <laughs> no, I don't, I, I mean, when I heard about it, um, I was so fascinated because I, it kind of made me think about how I was as a 10-year-old. And the only thing I can think about at that time, Chris, was uh, just watching TV and uh, playing cricket all day long. Oh. You know? So <laughs> I had zero inclination to make any money. I had zero inclination for any entrepreneurial venture. I didn't even think about remotely uh, making money at that time. So kudos to you. It seems like, you know, your desire to entrepreneur. Yeah, <laughs> it, it was uh, already started when you were just 10 years old. And then I understand that uh, your first job was uh, when you were just 12 years old. And I think um, you were helping a local business. Yeah, uh, um, gosh, yeah. uh, that, that's, that's going back. I, uh, <laughs> 
I need to make money because I wanted to buy a computer. My parents couldn't afford to, to buy a computer. Uh, so the only job I could get that would hire a 12 year old was construction. Mm. Um, so I, I used to install kitchen cabinets and uh, very nice kitchen cabinets. I, I, was, I was pretty handy and uh, used to work on construction sites uh, after hours and during the summer and, and everything else to, uh, to, to make money, which was pretty good money at the time um, to buy my first computer. Uh, and then as soon as I got my first computer, I thought, oh, this physical labor stuff, I, <laughs> it's breaking me. <laughs> I, gotta, I gotta use my head, I gotta use my mind uh, and, uh, and started using my computer to, to try and make some money. Oh, that's awesome. Were you any good at the kitchen? Because I mean, I do have a remodeling project at my home and uh, I don't know whether I, I can afford you. Uh, I was know, actually but, pretty uh, good. Um, Malik, yeah. I, I was actually pretty good. I, I actually love it. And, uh, you know, for off times, I just built a deck not that long ago uh, in Manila, of all places, wow. uh, just to uh, keep up my skills. You never know. I might need to go back to construction. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think that's going to happen. But I may take you up on your offer to, uh, you know, probably uh, do some remodeling or at least give me some suggestions on how to go about it uh, when I'm ready. I'll, I'll definitely no problem. give you a call on that. So something else that I found quite interesting about your background, uh, Chris, and that many people may not know, is that you actually spent some early years of your life in uh, Lesotho and Swaziland, which are the two enclaved countries within the borders of South Africa. Can you tell us a little bit about how did you end up there, obviously with your parents, uh, but what were they doing there and how many years did you spend there? What, what memories yeah, so, do you have of that time? You know, it's funny. I, um as a segue, what I cannot believe now is you can go on Google Maps and travel around the streets that I grew up in. Uh, bl blows my mind. But at the time, uh, my parents were working for the Canadian government. My dad was working for, for CETA. And his job was to go over and build schools um, in, the, in the neighborhood with government funds, sort of like an NGO, and uh, you know, build uh, sort of uh, paying teachers and making sure that the education system was going along. So moved over when I was uh, just born. I think I was about a year and a half, two years, and, and okay. lived there until I was around uh, eight. Uh, but still had very, very clear memories. Uh, I, I mean, very, very clear memories of just, um, you know, the, the nature and, and the noise and, and frankly, just uh, the countryside and everything else. It was, it was quite a um, unique thing that when I first started getting into cities, I'm like, my goodness, what is this? And why are there so many cars? And, and what's, what, what's going on? Because at the time, very, very primitive uh, when, uh, when we were living there. Oh, wow. What an amazing experience. And oh, I would sure. think that, I mean, all this international experience that you had garnered by the time you were probably 18 years old uh, has shaped you as a global executive, because I have seen you now in action here in the Philippines, and you are so effortless, you are at ease. And I also met you in the U.S. at a Microsoft event, if you remember. That's right. And you were at home again. So obviously, you know, you are an international man of mystery, but do you think that having traveled in your early years has kind of shaped you as a person? For, for sure. Uh, absolutely. You know, it's funny, uh, when we first started, the parent company that got into the BPO business, the reason I was picked was that I was one of the few people who would actually spend a lot of time in different countries. And, uh, you know, when you think about being a global executive or, or forget about even executive, but when you think about working with people around the world, you know, there's nothing better than being in the countries. There's nothing better than sharing a meal. There's nothing better than understanding the culture, because once you do, it gives you a totally different perspective uh, and, and therefore enables you to connect at a very much deeper level. And I think have a much more rewarding kind of relationship, frankly, uh, as you go forward. And without that 
sort of being brought up in that uh, different environment, traveling a lot during my teens, um, I, I think it would have been very, very different for me. I, I mean, who knows, I could be staying in Canada right now and, and doing something completely different. So I always encourage people to travel and I always laugh at these global executives that we interview. And I'm like, how many countries have you been to? And it's like, not that many. And do you travel? Well, I can do everything by phone call and Zoom. And it's like, no, no, <laughs> no, you cannot. Yeah. Uh, and, and really try and, and, and get people to kind of uh, get out there and, and see the world. Yeah, there is no alternative to getting on a plane, going to a place that uh, you have never been before. Nobody speaks your language and try to survive. Right. I mean, uh, that's the it. best way to, uh, you know, Absolutely. prepare yourself for the international a leadership role, I guess. Absolutely. Do you think that uh, now that you are, you know, running what two hundred and twenty-five thousand employee organization, you are in forty countries in six continents? Is there a place that you have been after this expansion of your business that uh, made you think, "Oh my God, I can't believe that uh, we have a business in this corner of the world, which was so unique." Because, I mean, everybody's used to going to Manila or Bangalore or Noida, Omaha, <laughs> all the yeah. call center capitals like of the all, world. All the BPO places of the world, right? Yeah. You know, it's, it, it's fascinating to me. I mean, we opened up in Vietnam a couple of years ago and our uh, Vietnam team is killing it. And it's just amazing sort of what we're doing there for local uh, Vietnamese uh, companies as well as some international companies. And I just go, wow. Uh, I mean, we operate in Mauritius. And, and frankly, if I was in Mauritius, would I rather spend time on the beach or in an office? Honestly, Malik, I'd rather spend time at the beach. And it's amazing what the team does in, in, in Mauritius. And so when you think about all these different countries, uh, yeah. it, it is it's very, very, very cool um, to see it. And hopefully we'll continue to grow in, in net new countries and discover new places because uh, it is really a fascinating side of the business. Have you thought about setting up a shop in Boracay? I mean, that's a... Nice beach destination. I, I, yeah, I'm not sure I could get anyone to go to the go to the office in Barakai. Uh, ironically, I'm hearing about people during the pandemic actually working from home from Barakai, right? And so I'm yeah. like, wow, that's awesome. Where do I sign up? Exactly. I know. I know. Some people are definitely taking advantage of it. One of the things that I want to dig deeper with you, Chris, is your professional career. I find it very fascinating because I see signs of entrepreneurial ventures and then working for some companies and then working for a very large company, Cinex. Can you briefly walk us through how you went from starting out with, I think, Coral Systems um, and then ended up with Cinex? And then obviously we'll spend a lot more time talking about your Cinex and Concentrix years. Yeah, you know, it's funny. I think the common thread, uh, Malik, is, is entrepreneurship. And, you know, when I started uh, Coral, gosh, many, many years ago, is because who's going to hire a 16-year-old, right? And, um, and computers at the time were just really kind of burgeoning and for the tech people. Uh, I was selling 386s at the time and thinking like they were the fastest thing since sliced bread and, and amazing. And so really started my own business. And I, I grew it. Um, relatively large at the time, uh, based in Canada, and also actually had operations in Africa of all places. And uh, then then thought, gosh, maybe I'm missing something. Maybe uh, I don't know how to run businesses better. Maybe there's something else. And so um, sold it off and invested in a software company. Uh, we were the first Windows uh, accounting package ever, Windows 3.0. Um, unfortunately, we named the company that in Spanish, I think means no business and, and effectively there was no business for it, uh, and so lost a significant amount of money. 
Um, and then, you know, started doing consulting. And, and one of the individuals I ran into was a gentleman called Jim Estall, who's probably uh, a very big influence in my life, who was on the board of Research in Motion, if you remember BlackBerry, mm-hmm. you know, the company called EMJ Data Systems. And, yeah. he, and he, a lot of the tech in, in Canada, he's had his fingers in, um, but incredibly entrepreneurial. And so he was running a fairly big company, but because it was very entrepreneurial, because I was working for Jim directly, um, it, it didn't feel like it. Right. It was very kind of a lot of freedom. And so helped him uh, buy a company, integrate it. And then he got bought by Cynix. And I met the founder of Cynix, uh, a guy called Bob Wong, who is another you know, incredibly entrepreneurial individual, started Cynix out of the trunk of his car, built it to mm-hmm. a Fortune 500 company. Very few individuals can scale that way. Um, and, uh, you know, again, huge company, but Mark, the guy was just so um, uh, very tough taskmaster. Very, very tough, but just incredibly entrepreneurial. And so his thing was, hey, we need to change the profile of the business. We need to raise our margins. We need to get into these different areas. We're thinking about services. We're thinking about a bunch of other things. You know, Chris, you've traveled. You kind of know M&A. You've done integration. You know, go for it. And uh, I mean, what's better to, to be in a company with someone else's checkbook and, and, and build something up? <laughs> Uh, it was fantastic. It was awesome. Uh, and, I'm, and that's, I'm sure after you have gone through all these acquisitions, I don't think there are any pages left in that checkbook, I guess. Uh, you know? I know, I know, I know, I know. I, I, we, we were very good at spending. But, but honestly, um, you know, then, then got involved with the, uh, the BPO side. At the time, the company had bought um, what was Concentrix in mm-hmm. 2003. It's about mm-hmm. 25 people, you know, 30 people, very, very small. And we bought another small company, which because I was doing the M&A was Concentrix, and it was a couple million dollars and another hundred or so many people. And it started losing money after two months. And uh, Bob got so upset with me, like, how could you buy a company that's losing money? Uh, He said, you go fix it. I said, Bob, I know nothing about BPR. I know nothing about call center. Well, you bought it. You should know. You go fix it. (laughs) The rest is history, as they say, Mark. I know the rest is history, but I, I think you made a couple of really interesting points, and I want to you know dig deeper on that. One of the questions I had for you, and you already answered it, but I think it's worth expounding on it, is that here you are, you are very entrepreneurial. Your company gets acquired by Cinex, which is a large organization. Typically, the acquired executives stay with the acquiring company no more than a year or two, and then they leave yeah. because they can't survive in that, uh, you know, bureaucracy or the big company organization. You stayed with Cinex for so many years. So clearly, Cinex offered you something that you were looking for. You almost had like your cake and you eat it too. You, you could manifest your entrepreneurial zeal and have a safety net of having a job. I mean, the reason I want you to kind of talk a little bit about that is because that's the organization of the future, right? I mean, companies yeah. almost need to create that to attract the Zen Zers and the millennials who are so entrepreneurial just because of the, the ecosystem that they have grown up in. I, Malik, I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, frankly, I never thought I'd work for a big company. Uh, never thought I'd work for a big company. I hate politics. I hate bureaucracy. Um, and, and, you know, when I started at, at uh, Cynics, I honestly thought, I was only, to your point, six months, 
In fact, I wasn't even a permanent employee. And and Bob said, uh, hey, come down to California for a week. And the week turned into a month and the month turned into three months. And then finally, after six months, I said, Bob, you know, do I have a job? Like, should I get an apartment? I'm tired of a hotel. He's like, sure, why not, right? Um, but what it taught me, Malik, was two things. One, it taught me about the power of culture, which I had never really appreciated. Mm-hmm. I always thought culture was those mission statements up on the wall that people kind of you know, didn't pay attention to, and it was great for clients, but didn't really mean anything. But Cynics had a very powerful culture driven by Bob. And um, he enabled, he didn't care where he came from, he enabled people who had great ideas to do great things. And that's very unique in, in big businesses, very, very unique in big businesses, because generally they're very hierarchical, you know, there, there's a lot of processes, and, and it's hard to kind of frankly, stand out from the crowd until you kind of move your your way up the organization. And I think uh, Bob created a very unique culture around, hey, you've got a great idea, you can show your talent, willing to take a risk, let me see. And he used to talk about all these investments and all these areas as, as babies. And he said, you know, when you have a baby, you need to take care of it more, you need to change its diaper more, you need to do all these things more. And so he almost spent more time with sort of new things than the current business that was just, you know, highly efficient, running and and doing very well. I think the second thing that um, is something that that maybe is not the right way of putting it, but the freedom to be fired Hmm. is is a great thing. Because when you're not worried about, am I going to have a job or not? Because, hey, I think pretty smart, and I think I'm employable, and I think I could probably go off and do something, then you can really be true to yourself and be passionate about, hey, this is what I think we should do. And, and people look for that. And, and frankly, the new working um, uh, uh, staff who are coming into the workforce are also looking for that. They, they, they want to have their opinions heard. They want to kind of have discussions. They want to kind of new it. And, and frankly, they're highly uh, transient. If they don't like an environment or culture, they're more than happy to go across the road. And so it did kind of uh, instill a lot of foundational elements of how we built the concentric business and culture to this day to try and make sure that we attract and keep and find those uh, folks who want to take risks and, and help support them grow their careers. Uh, hopefully with us, obviously, but, uh, but, but very foundational elements when, uh, when I started working at Cynix. Yeah, it sounds like a fascinating culture, you know, culture for the future, right? My memory of uh, meeting with you, Chris, for the first time was uh, in 2010, right after I had joined SBI Global. That's and right. you had invited me for a coffee at Manila Peninsula. And I remember uh, that meeting very vividly and you were very nice. And I thought, what a nice guy. But then obviously <laughs> looking back, I realized you were grooming me for an acquisition at a later date. Of course. Um, <laughs> of course, you were working uh, your charm with me and it, it really worked actually. But you know what, what I remember so vividly about that meeting is not what happened during the meeting, but what happened after the meeting. We walk out of the lobby and I thought, you know, here is a president of a North American company. There must be a fancy car waiting for him outside with a chauffeur and a driver. And guess what? Uh, You just walk into one of the local taxi, you get in and you drove off. And I thought this is amazing. I actually remember telling my team about that episode that... um, I just met a CEO of a company based in North America, and he just took a local taxi to his next meeting. Uh, I That's mean, funny. That's what you remember of the meeting. <laughs> and, the, and the reason it remain, I remember is because I keep sharing with people that uh, 
you know, whenever you see signs of humility, you already know that these people are going to go far because they are never going to get stuck with the trappings of success. And, uh, you know, they are going to always find ways to improve themselves and go for the bigger and better things, right? And I have seen that with you. So the reason I'm asking that is, uh, I mean, now you are running a huge organization. Um, is that still I your still, I, still ta- I still take grab. In Manila, I still take grab. Um, yeah, that's funny that that's what you remember. I That just seems very natural. Why would you have someone waiting around for you and doesn't seem highly efficient and, you know, kind of get on with things and, and do the things, right? Yeah, and I, I would think the same way, but, you know, I have hosted so many CEOs, uh, you know, clients and the bosses in the past, and some of them have asked for armored vehicles with, uh, you know, <laughs> police escorts to go from one place to the next. And I'm like, my God, nobody knows you here. It's okay. You're safe. There are yeah. no terrorists who are going to kidnap you and uh, you're okay. But uh, you, and that's probably, you know, because of your upbringing where you were traveling around the world and you were at ease with it. So I think that that played out a lot too. Yeah, for sure. I, I also think, you know, um, we often talk about being humble. I think it's underrated that people don't talk about a lot. And, and you know, we had a great quarter um, this last quarter and became our own public company, you know, two quarters ago. And, and, and frankly, a lot of success. And the number one message we continue to tell our, our staff is we've got to be humble because you just don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. Right. And, and, you know, we, we, we have to count on people coming into work because they like to come into work. We have to count on our clients giving us business because, you know, we're doing the right job for them. And um, I just don't think there's much room to have an ego in this business because I think, you know, as well, right, you ran a very, very large company. I always say you go from hero to zero in one call. Right? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> and, and so <laughs> there's no time for an ego. Um, you just got to kind of right, get on yeah. with it. Right. And, and I also think when you ask people to work hard. Mm-hmm. Um, you can talk about culture all you want, but if you don't actually live it, it's, it's very easy for people to kind of go, well, oh, they say yeah, this, absolutely. but they do that, right? Uh, and so very, very, very different. But that, that's, that's funny. Yeah, I still, I still take grab around, still take the local stuff. It is what it is. <laughs> no, I was quite impressed with it. And uh, I, as I said, I, I still remember it. And uh, I wanted to talk about this in the podcast because I think anybody who's listening to it, uh, here is an example of, someone who is uh, running the second largest BPO company. It's almost like a mini United Nations, 225,000 people across 40 countries and takes a grab. Let's dig deeper a bit on your M&A experience. And I want to really uh, elicit some wisdom from you because you have done so many of them, right? You, you yeah. mentioned that uh, they gave you a checkbook and you started writing checks. And uh, as part of the Concentric's growth from 25 employees to whatever it is now, uh, you've gone through multiple acquisitions. Uh, there are two that stand out the most for me, obviously yeah. the one uh, IBM Ducks that brought you into the big league in 2013. Um, sure. What are, I found fascinating about that acquisition, Chris, is that here is Concentric's significantly smaller than IBM Ducks. I mean, oh, IBM Ducks sure. was like four or five times larger than you. For sure. It Absolutely. must have taken so much chutzpah and gumption to go out and talk to IBM Ducks and say, hey, I'm a David, but I'm going to buy the Goliath. Uh, tell us about that acquisition. What was the reason behind it and how did it come about? It's, it's funny. I, I, 
at the time we were around $200 million, give or take. We had around 11,000 people. And um, the discussion with our board of directors at the time was, uh, look, we're, we're too big to be small. We're too small to be big. You know, either we've got to really double down in this business or, or honestly, we should get out of the business, right? We should sell because we need to provide uh, opportunities for our staff to continue to grow. And, and really, that's how you, you, you do it. And so we were looking um, at, at multiple opportunities. I think that was very close to the time that I first met you, right? We were, we were kind of scouring the world for what could we do. And um, we'd heard that uh, IBM was looking at divesting uh, a division, but it was an urban rumor. And, you know, a lot of calls finally got to somebody who said, well, maybe and, you know, possibly and we'll get back to you. And, and so, um, you know, someone called me and we had a conversation around the size of the business. And I'm like, wow, this is this is this is big. I can remember writing down a piece of paper. We're 11,000. Wow, they're 30,000. Wow, we're 200. Wow, they're a billion. Holy crap. Um, <laughs> And, and then, like, how much is it going to be? And, and to be honest, the person threw out a price, and I started laughing. I said, well, it's going to be a short conversation because we can't afford that. Like, I knew that I could no way get to the board to, to, to do that. And they were like, well, what are you thinking? And I, I set a price, and they started laughing and said, like, there's no way we're going to do it for that. <laughs> um, but, but anyhow, they, they said, well, we'll, we'll, we'll have a, we'll a follow-up meeting, and we'll see. And, and sure enough, um, through a lot of pushing and, and, and um, you know, a couple of meetings and, and you know, uh, engagement. It's like, hey, I think we can get this done. And, and, you know, the board was very, very supportive, kind of like, wow, this could really be pulled off. And, you know, at the time, um, uh, IBM was, they weren't in a hurry to divest, but they, they certainly said, look, this business needs to find life of itself and we want to focus on software and we want to focus on a whole host of other things. So we were able to get to a deal, but it was, a, it was, Honestly, Malik, it was one of the most surreal experiences of my life. I can still remember the first meeting we had in place in Rockefeller Center, New York, at a bank overlooking Central Park. Like, you cannot think of a higher rent district. We walk in. There is five of us. Mm. There is probably 100 people on the other side. And they had half (laughs) the table empty on our side saying, are there any more people coming? And we're like, crap, we didn't invite anyone else. Like, you know. Uh, it, it, it was fun. And, and the meetings were like that. Like every meeting we'd go to, we were outnumbered by, you know, uh, well, exponentially not numbers. And, and I, I can still remember vividly at the end of the process when we closed the deal, I think we had about 30 people, 35 people disclosed and IBM had over 3000. Um, and, and, uh, we were, I mean, the team worked very hard. We were very proud of what we accomplished, but it was quite a surreal experience. But that taught us a lot about how to do M&A. Um, that taught us a lot about how to scale M&A. And uh, it, it was, it was a, frankly, the blueprint that we've used for multiple acquisitions after that, including the Convergence acquisition, which was doubling our size. So uh, a lot of lessons learned. A lot of lessons learned from that. Yeah, I mean, the same thing happened with uh, Convergence, right? I mean, they were also a uh, sizable organization. So probably required the same chutzpah and gumption to go and uh, meet with them and say, hey, we are ready to acquire you. Uh, yeah, it's, it's interesting. Um, cl- clearly very different uh, culture and more culture closer to, to the concentrics culture. Mm-hmm. But uh, they, they were about double our size. We were about 100,000. They were about 110,000 when we when we purchased them. Um, they were about a billion dollars more, give or take, of revenue, seven, $800 million more of revenue. Um, but, uh, you know, very steep culture. And I think, you know, we one thing we did 
well was execute on how we did the transaction and integration. One thing we did not do as well as was explaining why we were doing certain things. And it was only through sort of these culture roundtables that we were doing. Every time we buy a company, we do these culture roundtables to really get people integrated into what we're doing. And we're very uh, non-apologetic about it. I, I, I don't believe in M&A where people say, oh, we're going to take the best of both and we're going to hug and we're going to be the... It's too... Um, there's too much noise. So when we do an acquisition, we're like, this is our culture. This is what we believe. This is how we operate. You know, we're, we're, we're very happy to learn new stuff and to do things better, but, but we got to get to this point by this time, right? Very, very, very focused on it. And with the convergence acquisition, we did not do as good a job uh, explaining why we do that, that it, it causes less distraction, you get to one team faster, everyone's on the same part, there's no us and them. And um, it was only a couple months in when we got some feedback from staff members saying, why aren't we allowed to use a convergence name? Like, we're very proud of the conversion. Why aren't we allowed to use it? And day one, we banned the name of the company that we buy, which is very shocking to people. And we, we didn't explain it properly. So some good lessons that came out of it, but, but ultimately a successful formula that we believe allows us to kind of go and do uh, other acquisitions as we go forward. No, I think, I mean, there are so many lessons to be learned, right? Um, because... I have gone through a couple of acquisitions and uh, doing the deal, negotiating a deal, buying a company is so sexy and so exciting. But and the, the easiest part, by the way. That, that's the <laughs> easiest part, right? Uh, but then the hard work is uh, when the company is bought and now suddenly you have to share with the board that yes, the synergies that you assumed in your pricing model uh, would actually work out and you have to really integrate the company. So, For sure. I mean, if you had to share with us, uh, you know, top three things that you should not do after the integration and the top three thing you should do? I think um, from our perspective, our philosophy is we have to integrate the teams as fast as possible. And it can't be an us and a them. So if you look at my management team, big chunk of my management team is uh, new folks from acquisitions, right? Always acquisitions, we're adding people into the overall team. And so people see who are coming across from the acquired company, People that they work with now have huge responsibility, taking over more stuff, part of the, the key leadership team, right? We, we are not ones that kind of go in and say, oh, all these people are gone because they didn't come from our team, right? And, and I think that helps drive better kind of um, engagement. And uh, I think that also translates to being sort of very assertive and direct with what the expectations are and the timeline you have to do. I think a lot of times people don't think when they buy a company to start working on the integration until really the day the deal signs. We start thinking about the integration the day we start thinking about doing a deal. And so every time we engage people, every time we meet people, we go, oh, that person would be good for here, that person would be good for there, that system would really work well, this, could, could we do this, could we do that? So that the day we close the deal, we have very defined thoughts of who's gonna take which roles, what are we gonna do, how are we gonna do it, how are we gonna execute, so that there's not this waiting time. Because as soon as a deal closes, Malik, and, and you know this, right? Yeah. Rumor mills go rampant, people start kind of coming up with crazy, crazy stuff like you couldn't, uh, couldn't imagine. And without sort of the, the very certainty of saying, no, this is what we're gonna do, this is why we're gonna do it, this is how we're gonna do it, and this is the timeline we're gonna do it, it can cause a lot of noise. And so we're very focused on that. And, and the worst thing you can do is start to think about the integration the day you close the deal, and also try and please everybody. Um, we, and that's why we say we're unapologetic, and not in a nasty way, but just, um, we gotta get it done. The way we succeed is by going forward together, 
and there's no us in them. We're all one team now, and so let's just get this done. And and I think that cadence and that drive um, really starts to kind of tune things up and, and make things kind of come together quicker because we still have clients who've gone through M&A like five, six years ago, and they're still using disparate systems. They've still got disparate cultures. You can tell which person came from which company, and I've never wanted that. I mean, that to me is a kiss of death of why you can't reach synergy numbers because everyone has the, it wasn't built here syndrome and, you know, people do crazy things around that. I think the last thing that I cannot overstress enough about M&A, which people don't often think about or is the first thing to cut when they're not making their synergy numbers is culture. Um, We spend a lot on culture, like millions of dollars on culture when we buy a company. And Convergis, we spent like millions of dollars on culture. We had roadshows around the world where we brought together our top three to 4,000 leaders from both sides of the company, wow. where we brought them together in cities around the world. And we talked for two, three days about this is our culture. This is what we believe in. This is how we think. This is why we do these things. This is how we uh, operate. And if you don't like it, then please put up your hand and we'll take care of you and we'll exit you the company. Not in a bad way. You're a good person. Just yeah. You know, we, we don't want sort of people kind of say, oh, yeah, yeah, I'm into it. And, uh, you know, we were talking earlier, people can tell whether you're into the culture or not. People can tell whether you bought in or not. And so we really want people to, to, to buy in. But all that time and effort and money, we see time and time companies going through M&A. And the first thing that cut is like, oh, wow, if we cut out this amount, we'd save a, a ton of money. And yet we tend to overinvest in culture because we find that it gives us uh, a, a, a much bigger benefit quicker when everyone's on the same page. And uh, I, I cannot stress enough, big, big, big believer in driving culture down at the organization. Uh, we, we see benefits from it every single day as soon, as soon as we start rolling it out. And you also get that human connection, harder during the pandemic to do M&A, but that human connection of people meeting each other and realizing, hey, they're not so different. and having common bonds and common laughs and and, uh, and and then next time they're on the phone calling someone and saying, hey, Malik, I need this for you. Oh, yeah, no problem. I can totally do that for you. Drives the organization faster and better. So some of the stuff that we've we've picked up along the way from an M&A perspective. No, I think it makes sense. And I mean, I totally agree with you on the culture piece, right? Um, I always tell folks that in the BPO industry, uh, in the people-intensive industry, we are not in a business of actually servicing our clients or taking care of our calls. We are in the business of building a great culture because if you do that, then everything falls into places, right? The clients are happy because our employees are happy. And if the clients are happy, our investors are happy. So it's kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy in a positive way that uh, happens because of the, the culture. So yeah. now, now that you are a publicly traded company, does that change the the drive that you have shown us in terms of the acquisition spree, are you looking at the growth differently now going forward versus what you have done over the last uh, 15 years? Uh, it's, it's, it's very similar. Look, uh, we'll grow both organically and inorganically. We, we've got a good formula from an M&A perspective, but we are a pretty disciplined uh, buyer, right? Mm-hmm. And um, disciplined, some people would read cheap, some people would read you know, high returns, lots of what people think of discipline. But to us- That's how I read you, by the way. I know, I know. You told me that. You said, Chris, I'll never sell to you. <laughs> I think for the um, audience, uh, Chris tried his very best 
and I knew he's not going to pay up. So I kept him out of the beating process. And it was a very difficult time for our relationship uh, for the couple <laughs> of years. And then we have patched up. We are uh, back to being really good friends. But I remember that time. <laughs> I, I know. And it's funny. Like, we're, we're again, we're so unapologetic. Like, what we're, here's the thing. When we do M&A, we don't pay with people. So there's companies that do M&A that will pay a huge multiple and, and huge premium. They come in and they just sort of like just start axing things left, right, and center. And our belief is that, you know, generally when we do, do M&A, we actually have to invest more in the business, right? So we have to get people to parity. We have to do all these things. We have to kind of build out. We have to invest in culture, all, all these different things. And so we take that into factor when we look at a deal and say, okay, are we doing the right thing for this deal? And that's not to say that we uh, have not paid significant premiums on, on deals. We actually have. Um, but it's about are we driving the right returns and can we do it from growth in the business versus, you know, making huge slash and burn cuts on the uh, on the organization to where there's not much left. Because we see tons of M&A that goes south where people buy it and then they start kind of cut, cut, cut. And then they realize, oh, I don't have a business left. And so when we look at that, you know, um, are there opportunities out there that fit that matrix? Absolutely. Will we continue to do M&A? Um, Absolutely. Uh, are we also focused on strong organic growth? You know, absolutely. It does change our thoughts. You know, part of our limitation with uh, M&A under our prior parent was our multiple was not a high multiple. It wasn't the same as a multiple for BPO. So it does give us a little more financial freedom now that we're our own public company. Mm -hmm. uh, but, uh, but um, you know, yeah, we, we, uh, we have a unique process that we follow that, um, that drives the right returns. But I can't argue with success. Uh, the team has done an amazing job with the, the acquisitions over the years and uh, definitely want to kind of keep it up. No, and I think one of the changes that happens when you go from being a privately held company to publicly traded companies, you start focusing more on the next quarter results or the next year results. But I want to pick your brain on your views on where the industry is going, not next quarter or next year, but in 2030. So yeah. when you extrapolate this industry, what do you see in 2030? How different it would be from what it is now? I, I think that's a, um, a fascinating question we actually spend a lot of time thinking about. And, and from my perspective, you know, a lot of the things that are sold now in, in terms of smoke and mirrors like AI, right, which, you know, is not probably a meaningful contributor to changing the industry, I think in 2030 will be a meaningful contributor in the industry. I, I do believe that you're going to be able to do instant language translation on the fly in video. And so what's that going to mean for your global footprint, right? If uh, translation can be done instantaneously and, and whether it be through text or chat or, 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 or video or voice, um, you know, it's going to change things pretty, pretty dynamically. So more focus is going to have to be on country culture than language capabilities that kind of go along with it. Uh, I also think that, you know, you're going to get a lot more aggregation of uh, companies in terms of supporting a customer experience. And you're getting that now. When you book a flight, you see, hey, there's a hotel and there's a car rental and you can book it all at the same place. But if you have a problem, you have to go to three or four different people to sort it out. And ultimately, I think where things are going is that you're going to call into one kind of aggregator of support experience or engagement experience, and they're going to be able to sort out everything for you because that's what people are going to want. I clearly think, you know, substantially more is going to be done digitally. There's still a huge, I mean, billions of transactions that I look at and kind of go, why are people touching these? <laughs> this should be a mobile app. This should be automatic. This should be this, should be that. And I think, you know, clearly a lot more. Uh, goes goes digitally, which I think is a good thing, which means that the skill set in the BPO industry 
is really going to go upscale, which I think is fantastic. It means more pay, it means more intellectual stimulation, it means more engagement, it means more you know, long-term careers around that. So I think that's really, really healthy for the business. And you know, I, I'd love it to be faster than 2030, but certainly it's going down that uh, down that path. And, and lastly, you know, I, I think what's very underestimated is in this business, there's a lot of gut feel. Because data is so disparate and because people aren't good at capturing data, there's all these ideas about, well, we should create this for customer experience and how do we measure? Well, we might measure by NPS, we might measure by this, we might measure by this. But the companies that are really cutting edge, uh, the way they look at data, first of all, they have one database, they don't have disparate databases. Two, they really understand the analytics around it. And then they use it to make informed decisions around how to engage uh, customers in a different way, like either what channel, what options, um, being predictive so that Moloch, when you, when, you, when you engage a brand, you don't have to say, hey, I'm, I'm Moloch and I dealt with you two weeks ago and you know the telemetry for my dice, device is, is telling you that my device is wrong, so I can just pick up the phone and say, hey, Moloch, here's your problem. Or maybe I don't even need to call, maybe you don't even need to call. I can you know, preempt your, your, your call by knowing from a data perspective how to engage with you. Mm-hmm. So I think all those changes are gonna drive huge, huge change in our industry. And, and frankly, I think it's an exciting time because as much change that's happened in the last 10 years, I only see it speeding up in the next 10 years. Yeah, the speed of disruption, as they say, is just accelerating, right? It's getting faster and faster. What about uh, the impact of work from home? Do you think that's just a fad because of COVID-19 situation? Or do you think uh, companies are more likely to be open, especially in the BPO industry, because we want our employees to be gathered so we can manage them and, uh, you know, you can control some of the fraudulent uh, behavior issues that uh, client uh, expect us to do? Fascinating debate. We, we, we were doing investor calls yesterday and one of our competitors is public says they're gonna have 80 to 90% of the people work from home. And we're like, I think it's gonna be 30 to 40%. And so debate rages. I, I think Malik, in some regions, in some types of skill sets, um, with the right infrastructure, I, I think absolutely work at home is gonna here to stay and it's gonna here to stay in a in much larger place than it ever was before uh, pre-pandemic. But I think, you know, in other countries, we see people wanting to come into the office. We see people wanting to have that emotional connection with their friends at the office. Mm -hmm. We see people who have living situations that they kind of go, hey, I I live with my grandparents, I live with my brothers and sisters, my family, I need a space to to be separate to to, uh, to do, I I enjoy it, I want my my separate space. We also see people who are just not, they're not tuned to do work at home. From a mental health perspective, they, they need that level of engagement. We see other people who love working at home. Like mm-hmm. th- 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 uh, th- they wouldn't go into the office for three or four years and be very, very happy about <laughs> it. So I, I think it's gonna be a mix, but I think it's gonna come down to the type of vertical. I think it's gonna come down to the type of work. It's gonna come down to the personal, um, uh, uh, you know, beliefs that person has and how they feel to make themselves the healthiest mentally. Uh, that is going to really drive it. But what is for sure changed is the nature of work and how it's done is gonna be much more flexible. The reality is we're gonna have people come into our office two, three days a week, that's it. We're gonna have people coming up every day. We're gonna have people who are completely remote. We're gonna have people who are, um, hey, I only work from Monday between six in the morning and 10, at, 10 in the morning and that's all I ever wanna work. And I think the new world is we're going to figure out a way to accommodate that. 
um, and figure out how that, that matches because that might be an arrival pattern and that might be a volume pattern of one of our clients or that might be a kickoff of a week or whatever the case might be. But the whole flexibility of work, um, I think absolutely has uh, and will change and continue to evolve in the coming years. Yeah, and with so many implications, right? I mean, commercial real estate market. Imagine how many thousands of square feet or square meters of space here in Manila dedicated to BPO industry. And if everybody starts working from, that's a huge transition for that market as well. And uh, same thing to the residential market, right? If you can work from home, you don't have to stay right next to your uh, office. You can go away, have a little bit more peace, have a more a bigger uh, plot to build a home from if you go to the suburbs, right? So, you know, so it, many it, changes. Fascinating. fascinating. We, we were talking to one of our, our clients, a bank in Australia, and they were talking about that, um, you know, home sales by the beach, home sales in, in more rural areas are going through the roof yeah. where, you know, suburban areas are kind of like, hmm. And then, you know, talking to, we were talking to a home builder in the U.S. and they're saying the demand for, um, extra, you know, forget about big master bedrooms, forget about, you know, big kitchens. People want like home offices and they don't want like the spare bedroom home office. They want like a real home office that they can home with. So it's absolutely changing people's buying habits um, in, in sort of affluent, uh, affluent areas. And it's also changing people's thoughts around it in, in urban areas. But um, I think, you know, commercial real estate probably is gonna go through a bit of a rough time but uh, ultimately, people are still going to want to be together. People are still going to want to have offices. It'll just probably not be in the same volume that, that has happened, you know, Manila or, or, or everything else. We have, we have staff, Malik, you'd have the same thing. We have staff who are saving, you know, literally four hours of their day not getting on a jeepney. Exactly. Like the, the, that is life changing. <laughs> that is life changing. So the more we can support that, hey, the, 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 the better. So much more time with the family, so much more time with the kids, right? Uh, it's, uh, everybody I've met uh, and I speak with, uh, they see the value of being in home and working from home. Obviously, you know, at one point, people will start to go back to work, to your point. And the good news is that uh, instead of just working from office option, now companies would kind of find a balance on their own you know, that makes sense for them. Some would yeah. go to your point, 80% work from home and others would say, well, you know, 20, 30%, right? So I, I think it's a fascinating change that COVID-19, if there is any silver lining that came from this crisis that we have gone through is realizing that we don't have to be in every meeting in person. Uh, we can yeah. do some of those meetings uh, remotely as well. How about yeah. the impact of freelancing in uh, the BPO industry? It's interesting, Malik. We, we have been playing around with gig economy for probably three years now. We have our own gig platform that we built. And, and um, the two things that we're seeing impediments to it, one is legislation. Lots of legislation are coming out in different places saying, hey, we, we don't agree with freelancing. The government mandated to say it doesn't work this way. You have to provide minimum hours. You have to provide it. Even though generally we see gig workers against it, um, the fact is that it, it, it is basically being more mandated that it's not done. If that becomes more widespread, we see it being more challenged. But on the whole, where I think gig working really has um, uh, an ability to kind of be impactful is actually on the higher end stuff versus the lower end stuff. So lower end stuff is very easy to do gig work, but, but where um, professionals like a lawyer saying, hey, I'm gonna be a gig, gig lawyer because I'm just gonna take the stuff that I want when I want, uh, I, you know, engineer, I, I met a, um, 
a good content uh, comp- uh, not company, but a, a guy who works as a gig worker doing mm-hmm. high-end animation content. And he loves it because he likes to travel around, he likes to do everything like that. And he goes, you know, I put it up on, on one of the gig sites and I say, hey, you know, you need 10 hours, five hours, three hours for this content, I'll deliver it, you know, boom, move on to something else, right? So I think it has a, has a need. Will it be the, the vast majority of the workforce which people estimate? I don't believe so. I think it will be very select. Um, I think it'll, it'll grow, but I don't think it will have as big as impact as we originally thought a year or two ago. Okay. You know, you mentioned uh, it really impacts heavily for the highly trained, highly professional employees. You're right. Uh, when I was doing research for my book, I came across a couple of Harvard MBAs with their profiles on Upwork, which is one of the freelance yeah. platforms, as that, you know. That's the site, yeah. And obviously, you know, their rate was significantly higher than all their peers. There was <laughs> yeah, also a guy. Right. <laughs> yeah. I don't know who can afford them. Um, there was also actually a guy who was um, a graduate of the Harvard Law School, and uh, he had written in his profile why he has embraced this new way of life. So slowly but surely, I think uh, once people realize that there is freedom yeah. that comes with freelancing choice, and if they can offer that service that someone in the world anywhere uh, wants it, then you know they have that ability to work when they want to work, where they want to work, how they want to work, and with who they want to work with, right? That's always yeah. the biggest nightmare at work because the, the pain point of working in an office space is not when you need to work or how you need to work, it's with whom you're working with. A lot of the stress and the, the political dynamic that come into play in an office space is actually the interpersonal environment that uh, plays out the politics yeah. that you don't have to deal with if you're a freelancer. I, I, I agree. I, I think it'll continue to evolve. Um, it's, it's fascinating. Uh, we see more and more uses of it, but but again, will it be the majority? That doesn't feel like it right at the moment. Yeah. Uh, no, that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So we're almost uh, coming down to the wire here, Chris, and I always end each podcast with the same set of rapid fire questions. Um, And they may sound like Mr. or Miss Universe type of questions, but very (laughs) powerful questions. And it really uh, shows the audience who you are, but also gives them insights on how to go about uh, improving their lives as well. So I'm gonna start off with the very first rapid fire question. So the first uh, rapid fire question we have for you is, what's the biggest fear you have had in your life? And uh, have you overcome it? And if so, how? How did you do that? Uh, big, biggest fear, uh, I used to fly a lot. I was an emergency landing. It scared me for flying, like petrified for flying, like petrified for flying. Uh, the only way I got over it was uh, going parachuting and, and jumping out of a plane. Um, and, and that pretty much cured my, my fear of flying. Uh, you gotta, wow. you gotta, so you gotta you literally... tackle your fears. Amazing. So you literally took on skydiving just to yeah. get over your fear. Wow. I, 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 I couldn't fly. I, I figured out, I said, okay, I'm going to go skydiving. I didn't want tandem. I found one place that would allow you to jump out of the plane by yourself. First jump, Moloch. <laughs> Not the smartest yeah. thing I've done. Uh, went, did it, scared the crap out of me. But I figured if I can jump out of a plane and I survive, then chances are when there's a qualified pilot flying, I'm all good. <laughs> That's amazing. You know, I, I have a similar story. I mean, I have been fearful of um, open waters, right? So oceans. 
I'm surrounded by water here in the Philippines. I thought I might as well get over that. So last, I think two years ago, I decided to get my uh, open water certification in scuba diving. And then I did advanced open water. So I've gone all the way down to 100 feet now yeah. just to get over that fear of open water and, you know, fear of drowning in the open water. So exactly. I can you relate gotta, you gotta to... You've got to tackle your fears exactly right on. Got to tackle your fears right on. No, oh, awesome, awesome. So the next question is, what's the biggest mistake have you made that uh, you have learned the most from that you can share with us? The biggest mistake I've learned uh, is not to go with my convictions. I think too many times, and I still make this mistake, there's too many times where your, your gut feel says, no, nah, you should do this. And and some of them have been doozy mistakes, Malik. Like I've, I've either kept someone that I shouldn't have uh, thinking that they would change and they didn't. Um, I've either done a deal where at the back, I thought, ah, not the best thing. So, you know, whatever you want to call it, your intuition, your gut feel, I give it a lot more credence now than I did when I was in my twenties. <laughs> Let's put it that way. <laughs> That's amazing. And, and that probably, you know, ties up with uh, the next question I have, which is, you know, what advice would you give to your 18 year old self? knowing everything you know now. Yeah, my, my advice to, to, to young people, uh, own children is, is, you know, travel, look at the world, embrace new cultures, you know, be, feel free to be fired, right? So that, you, you know, don't, don't, don't suffer in silence, right? Make sure that you're, you're engaged in what you do and be passionate. You only have one life, so make it the life that you, you, you want. And, you know, I've seen people do amazing things, like just totally incredible things who have come from nothing. And I've seen people who have every privilege in the world do nothing, <laughs> mm, <laughs> right? And, and, Beautifully and, said, yeah. And so ultimately, um, it's, it's uh, you know, follow your intuition, follow your heart and, uh, and have fun um, and don't take yourself too seriously. I think people, the anxiety of young people these days is crazy. And I think a lot of that is social media. And goodness knows, mm -hmm. if social media was around when I was around Moloch, there'd be a lot of stuff on Facebook <laughs> and, and Instagram that would probably not be too flattering. But uh, turn yeah. off your phones and engage in life um, and, and have some fun. And travel, right? And travel. Absolutely travel. How about quotes that uh, have resonated with you well? You know, what are your favorite quotes that you live by, that you remember, that you talk about when you are giving speeches to your employees or to investors? Uh, oh my gosh, there's three Latin quotes, and I'm not going to give you the Latin ones because I'm going to pronounce it very, very badly, but obviously seize the day, right? I'm a big seize the day fan. Every, every day you want to do something. Um, there was a, a, a school that had a uh, motto that was, there's more in you than you think, which I think people truly underappreciate what they're capable of achieving and doing because they always put their own limits on them. They, they, they kind of infer that other people put limits on them, but really the vast majority of people I see put their own limits on them, on what they think they're capable of achieving. Um, and the last one is strive for greater things. I, 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 I talk about um, you know, committing with passion, right? Why do something if you're not gonna be passionate about it? I talk about burning the bridges behind you. And most people kind of go, what are you talking about? You're never supposed to burn the bridges behind you. And, and I actually say, yeah. you know, sometimes you have to burn the bridges behind you because then you can't go back. It, it, you need to keep moving forward. Um, and so while all hokey, Malik, these are the things that, that resonate I in my it. brain. And, and uh, I often use when I talk to people about, you know, just um, self-development and, and where, as a company, we're going, right? Yeah. No, beautiful quotes. I love them, actually. I love yeah. the last one you said, burn the bridges in the past and move on, just yeah. move forward, right? Go forward. That's, that's a beautiful way to look at life. 
How about books? Any, any books that uh, you've read over the years that uh, you've gone back to time and again because it has such a profound impact on you or, or you just read it once, but you remember the yeah, three lessons yeah. Actually, the books that have really meant a lot to me was, um, I think it's called The Art of Leadership. It's by the, the gentleman who started Panasonic. Um, mm. uh, and it's written by uh, a Harvard business professor, um, I think Cotter. And it's, it's a fascinating book because it talks about how this gentleman in the middle of the Second World War lost everything, yet built Panasonic into what it is today and um, his philosophies. And, and he was one of the first people who started like thinking about how companies impact the world and society. And he also was, uh, you know, built this huge conglomerate by having each of his organizations compete against each other. Right. So that there's no favorite favorite child, so to speak. Right. Everyone was was yeah. was was driven. And so there's a lot of things in that that um, I took away from that I go back to and I think about a lot. Um, I think I, I read a lot of biographies, Moloch, like a, uh, probably the most category I read. And uh, the one that I enjoyed probably the most is Richard Branson's, I think it's called Losing My Virginity, is its first oh, book. Yeah. It's the one that he wrote, not from the ones that I think he's had ghostwriters because it's a very different style of nuance. And, and I thought, honestly, you know, Moloch, the thing I've always found frustrating is I've met a lot of successful people, and um, a lot of the times it's like they walk on the clouds, like they've never had any hardships, they, or they just don't discuss it. No, no, no one wants to be vulnerable, right? Everyone wants to tell you oh, everything's great and start like life's hard, <laughs> business is yeah. very hard, a lot, lot of challenges. And and Richard Branson's book at the time um, was probably the most revealing, where you you see this you know billionaire, and and through the book he talks about a lot of you know, bad decisions, things that he's done that he's not proud of, um, crazy business deals that, that you know, did not work out well. Uh, like, it, it was very real. And so uh, I, I took away from it saying, wow, you know, nothing's perfect. Uh, no one's perfect. And, and there's always uh, multiple sides to a story. Anyhow, I very much enjoyed, uh, very, very much enjoyed the book. Um, I enjoyed Sam Walton's book. That was fascinating. Uh, very humbly written, Ray, right? Yeah, very, yeah. very humbly written, and um, he was talking uh, very profound to me about getting your family involved. Uh, the line in the book that was very fascinating to me was when he talked about um, he's about to go public. Walmart's doing incredibly well, and his uh, I think his daughter comes to him and says, "Dad, does this mean the bank won't take our house?" <laughs> and he's like. Wow, my kids think we're broke, right? Because we've spent so much money expanding, right? And and they had no relation to how successful the business was and how important going public was. So anyhow, pretty pretty fascinating stuff. But um, no, I love awesome. to read stuff, right? Lo love to read biographies and, and everything else that's out there. You know, I'm I'm going to actually add one more uh, rapid fire question based on the answer that you just gave me. If you had to write your own. Uh, book about your life, you know, your own autobiography, what would be the title that you would give it to? I mean, knowing that losing my virginity is already taken by Richard <laughs> Branson. Uh, that's interesting. Um, I, I, uh, one of my favorite quotes is, uh, the harder the work, uh, the harder I work, the luckier I get. Mm, um, I like that. Uh, and, and, uh, I've always kept track of like little stupid things along the way. So who knows one day, uh, share it but but i think um yeah probably something like that uh that not, sounds not, great yeah 
not not, uh, not some of the other titles I like. You know, take no prisoners. Uh, all, all these crazy uh, type A personality books that are out there. Um, but uh, but but for sure, just kind of life lessons. But I think you should think about it because one of these days, at the the rate and the velocity with which you're going, one day somebody's going to say, Chris, it's about time you need to write a book. So, well, hopefully uh, they don't say it's about time you retire. I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm dreading that day, Wallach. <laughs> no, no, I don't think anybody's going to ask you to retire. And I don't think you're, you have anything in you that would let you retire for the rest of your life. I, I can see you, you know, always contributing in a way that makes the world a better place around you. So uh, that's good. The last one, and then, you know, that will be the end of it. Obviously, you are mentors to many people in concentrics and beyond. Uh, people look up to you. They learn from you. You talked a lot about Bob Kwan. Clearly, yeah. he's a mentor to you. But uh, any other people that come to your mind who have played a big role in who you are? Yeah. I, I, who you are. Yeah, I, I've had really sort of... Um, actually, clearly, my parents are big, big influences to me. Um, very unique people uh, and, and gave me the freedom to do stuff that, as a parent, I'm not sure I would have given my kids freedom to do, frankly. Uh, so, so I, I tell them, but, but really in, in, in big development stages, you know, I had to, the first boss I had in the construction site, Moloch, uh, he was incredibly tough on me because I would remember doing wiring up behind walls and, 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 cover, and, and he would come back and go, why is this not straight? And why didn't you do the wiring properly? You should have tucked, like who sees it? And he says, how dare you? Like, you know, if no one sees anything, it doesn't mean you don't do a, a good job. And, and, and like, you, you have to take pride in your own work. And, and he, I got, a, I remember very clear this massive lecture around, uh, you know, it doesn't, you don't look for anyone to give you a pat on the back. It's you that has to be uh, uh, proud of what you do and, and, and so forth and so on. And, and that was very, um, very, very uh, formative for me. And then Jim Estel, I mentioned, right? Um, yeah. He... This guy is very successful, uber successful, uber driven, uh, uber entrepreneurial. Moloch, the guy is probably the one humblest and nicest guys you've ever met. He's mm. just genuinely a nice guy. And he, he, I can, you know, he taught a lot about, you know, speed of execution, about art of the deal, about, you know, you know, jumping and, and, and saying, why couldn't you do a big deal, right? Um, he, he, he taught a lot about practical business reason, talked a lot about how to do entrepreneurial in, in, in big business, so certainly a big influence. I had a, a lady called Julia Watt, who unfortunately has passed away, who ran a very large company, and uh, it was problematic. She went in to, to take it over, and she was, uh, you know, probably four foot nothing from a height perspective, but personality larger than a mountain. And, uh, you know, I can still remember, I went to the... the a big company, warehouse, something like that. And here I am, I'm in the back of the warehouse. I'm a, a, a lowly little customer. I bought like very little from this company and, and she was a Texan. And all I heard was these high heeled shoes coming through the warehouse. And she's like, how long have you been waiting here? And I'm like, uh, you know, 10 minutes. And no one served you yet? Uh, no, let me get right on that. And here she is in this business suit in this huge warehouse organizing stuff. And, and I, I remember talking to her like a, a year later going, Julia, really like, um, I, I'm, I'm nothing as a customer, right? And, and you're the president and CEO of the company. And she goes, so? She goes, you're a customer, you're important to me. Why, why would I not do something for you? Why would I not help you? And, and she was so radically focused on customers that you know that helped build our culture at Concentrics where we talk about being fanatically focused on our clients. 
That, that was Julia. That's amazing. Right? Um, you know, when I look at you and I remember my time with you, every time I had a chance to meet with you, uh, I can see why these people are your mentors because you have not only just observed what you like about them, but it seems like uh, you have imbibed, you have uh, really made those lessons part of your life as well. Because uh, as I shared with uh, the audience early on, you just fascinated me when you just got into this uh, local oh. taxi 10 years ago and just took off. I just, I did not expect that. <laughs> I thought there is going to be a bodyguard and there is going to be a chauffeur no, police no. escort that will go with you. So no. I, I will say about like, you know, one thing, yeah. I, I, it's interesting. One thing I also say though, what people don't talk about a lot is um, mentors that teach you how not to do things. And I'd never use any names, but, but I've had people that I've come across in my career that I've learned equally as much from them of saying, yeah. I don't like that. I don't want yeah. that. I hope I don't come across like that. Um, wow, that's really bad. And, and I think sometimes I, I often tell people who have a difficult time with a boss to say, look, you know, there's equal amounts to learn from people you don't get along with as there are from people that you aspire to be, right? And yeah. uh, I've had some good mentors that have, <laughs> I, they're not on my Christmas card list, uh, list Moloch, but, uh, but they taught me a lot uh, and, um, and are equally valuable as, as you form your opinions. No, I agree with you. And I, I think the only thing I would add to that is that, uh, yeah, work with even bad bosses, but always know when to leave because you don't want to you know, over leave your time because uh, there is significantly better bosses waiting for you. So learn your lessons from the bad bosses. I've done that myself, Chris, and I think we should probably have another podcast for two hours just to talk about that. But then the key is to know when it's time for you to leave and uh, find something that makes your heart sing again. Because if you allow that something to die within you because you're working with uh, someone who is toxic, someone who is not giving you an opportunity to improve or to grow, then uh, you don't want to waste your time too much as well. Totally agree. Totally, totally agree. So my friend, Chris, uh, what a pleasure it has been to have you on this podcast. Uh, an honor, honestly, given everything that you have accomplished. I am so happy that uh, you shared with us your journey. Very fascinating from selling floppy disks when you're 10 years old to now running the second largest BPO company with 225,000 people around the world. What an amazing, what an inspiring journey you've taken, Chris. Thank you for sharing that with us. Thank you very much. I appreciate it, Malik. Always, always great to get together. Hi, guys. This is Malik again. I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Chris Caldwell. If you would like to listen to more of these inspiring conversations with global leaders, don't forget to subscribe to the podcast so you will be notified when I publish the next episode. I have a series of conversations lined up with leaders from a variety of industries and fields. So until next time, stay healthy and stay safe.